Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and this week we're joined by a very special guest, one of the country's best-known lawyers, Nazir Afzal. Nazir spent much of his career in the CPS and became Chief Crown Prosecutor for the northwest of England. Um, He's prosecuted some of the nation's worst criminals, been on an Al-Qaeda hit list and had the BNP protesting outside his house. Um, We're chatting today ahead of his appearance at the Harrogate Literature Festival on October the 22nd, where he will be discussing his fantastic autobiography, The Prosecutor. Um, So, hello and uh, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Hello, Chris. Hi. Delighted to be here. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, So, one of the things that I I was hoping to speak to you about is, um, at the very start of the book, um, you talk about being a teenager in 1970s Birmingham and being attacked by by racists and going home and your father delivering a pretty bleak lesson that you basically weren't going to get justice for the attack. Um, And I was really interested in kind of sort of how that led on to this situation where you've ended up following a career path that's been all about seeking justice for other people. Do you see the two things as as sort of very connected, what happened to you when you were younger and and your career? Very much so. I think everybody's on a journey and my journey started in uh, inner city Birmingham uh, at a time when um, Enoch Powell was making speeches about rivers of blood and when um, skinheads were um, openly um, wearing Nazi regalia and screaming and shouting at you and spitting at you. And um, I have no doubt that the experiences that I've tried to describe in the book are, are, are re- the reason why I moved into the roles that I did. Uh, I felt I was a victim, and there's no doubt about it. Um, I did not think, or my father certainly didn't think, that there would ever be anybody listening to us about our victimhood. Um, I was only a victim because I was different. There was nothing else to it. Um, and, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that a taxi driver turned up as he did on one occasion, uh, those three men would have probably killed me. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I take, I think it's a real privilege then that, that I can take whatever happened to me and, and understand what other victims have had to go through and go through in order to try and ensure um, that uh, my feeling of impotence and uh, powerlessness is not something that they have to feel. Do, do, you, do you feel that society is in a better place now or is it still a fair way to go? Or? Well, it's in a better place. I mean, but we're coming from a very, very low uh, um, threshold, aren't we? Um, you know, right now, today, people will be suffering hate perhaps online, maybe not in the real world as they used to, as much anyway. Um, but uh, bigotry is as real today as it ever has been. And um, I think that, um, that what's different, I guess, is that authorities take it more seriously um, and they have um, reached out and, and, and encouraged people to report their, their crimes, their concerns. Uh, and in some part, they've reacted to it and acted upon it and, and people have been brought to justice. But, um, you know, we're already talking about the tip of the iceberg, aren't we, Chris? I mean, um, I, on a daily basis, some people are locked in their homes, don't feel able to come out. They're scared because of antisocial behaviour or because of anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or just, just because of who they are. And mm-hmm. um, so we've still got uh, some way to go, but uh, undoubtedly we've made progress. Um, and 
initially um you you worked as a solicitor didn't you and one of the first cases that you worked on when you were defending people um was well as part of a team i think but it was notable success defending people who'd been framed by the police yes. and the crime squad involved in the west midlands actually ended up being shut down and was was that a case that kind of opened your eyes to some of the things that was going on or were you sort of aware of I think again I think people again in the in the 70s and 80s corruption in the police was very much more open I mean it still happens but it's not that anything like the degree back then if you've watched the Sweeney uh, or uh, any uh, television program from that period uh, you'll see corrupt police officers and the serious crime squad um, the West Midlands squad was uh, corrupt to the core and um, it was the, the days before tape recorded interviews, um, so they could literally make up confessions. And uh, unfortunately for them, they weren't clever enough to make up their confessions in such a way that they couldn't be caught out. But, um, you know, yes, it taught me um, that, that people with power can also be bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that um, you have the means uh, to bring them down and bring them to seek uh, to see justice. And, you know, some of the people I represented were really nasty themselves, but they hadn't committed that crime. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that, um, uh, you know, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your criminality, whatever, you know, whatever might be happening in your lives, you're still entitled to a fair trial. And but uh, going on from that, you decided to uh, leave defence work, didn't you? After a particular case where you were you were brought in to to represent an individual accused of rape, yeah. Um, and then, well, could you tell me a little bit more about exactly what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you 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 attend police stations uh, to give advice to suspects who've been arrested. This particular suspect had been arrested for a rape. Again, this was in the days before video recording of, of um, interviews from uh, victims. And so uh, what I had in front of me, was given to me by the police, was the, the statement of the victim. Uh, I'm there with a the suspect, and I'm, uh, you know, my job is to read to him the, the statement in order for it to hit, get his comments on it and then advise him as to what to do. Uh, and it was obvious to me um, that he was getting off on it. I can't put, think of another way to describe it. Um, he was reliving what he had done to her by by the fact that I was reading the statement to him. And I thought, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, you know, it wasn't. I mean, I, let's make this clear. You know, people who just do this work, defence work, representatives, are absolutely valuable. We all need them at some point. You need somebody just to stand by you when you're facing authority. It just wasn't going to be me. And uh, when I realised that, you know. Um, it wasn't in my DNA to represent somebody like that. Uh, I decided to step out the door. Um, so, so that then led on to you taking a role with the CPS, which was in its fledgling days at that stage. Um, and one of the things you say in the book that's quite interesting is that everybody hated us. Detested us. It was more than <laughs> hate. Um, the CPS was, was created because the... There were so many miscarriages of justice, the Birmingham Six, Guildhall Four, so many occasions in which police were marking their own homework, and uh, it was necessary to have an independent prosecution service. So the police hated us straight away because we'd taken away their power to take these cases to court and review their evidence, etc. Um, then uh, the public hated us because we weren't properly funded. 
So the government, Major's government, um, Thatcher's government didn't have created it, but didn't fund it. Um, and so we were making mistakes. We were losing cases. We were losing pace, papers, basic bureaucracy, really. Uh, the um, defence community hated us because we, we took so many of their lawyers, like me, for example, you know. Um, so they were losing all these experienced staff to join the prosecution service. Uh, the judges hated us because now we were in a position where we had, you know, there were proper lawyers defending against defence lawyers, uh, and they they missed their police advocates. Um, uh, and politicians hated us because I think they just hated us. Um, and, you know, the reality, Chris, is that I, I, you know, we we were there was a trust deficit, uh, and it was absolutely essential to rebuild that trust, or to, not rebuild, but to build that trust. But um, it wasn't um, a job that you did uh, to get. Um, kudos uh, and uh, get reward or get recognition um and I, I recognize that pretty quickly and and so why did you then because it was such a challenge why why was this kind of a line of work for you uh simply put um even though it's called the crown prosecution service it's the public's prosecution service and remind you know, at the outset you talked about well we talked about what happened to me as a, as a young victim, etc. Um, that the public needed somebody to fight for them, to make sure that um, um, bad behaviour was addressed, to make sure that the innocent were 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 pre- prevented from going into the system. You know, uh, you know they they required somebody to take their side too, um, somebody to stand up for human rights, somebody to stand up for basic rights. Um, you know. All of those things, and probably more. And you know, I didn't do it for the money. You know, you can make a lot more money in corporate law or or industrial law, employment law, any any law, to be honest. Uh, and uh, and you did. I didn't do it because you know, as I mentioned, you were getting attacked left, right, and centre. I did it because I thought it was the right thing, and I still believe it's the right thing. I was really struck. There was a line in the book actually um, where you say prosecutors are a force for good. Um, and that's not something you hear much about lawyers, even from lawyers themselves. Um, but is that something that you believe quite? A hundred percent, do I believe it? Um, you know, I've, um, I've I'm immensely privileged that victims, survivors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have looked to me and to my teams and my colleagues to deliver justice for them. And you know, I can I can think of so many examples where people have finally been able to get on with their lives or have. Um, have got some recompense for the pain they suffered. Uh, and that is absolutely essential in a democratic society, that um, people feel that they can stand up to power or people feel that they can, um, you know, be heard. I and mean, one of the problems I think in, that's come through some of my casework is that such a large group of our citizens are just not heard. And uh, the prosecution service's job is to do that. Uh, and what's that moment like when you've been working on a particularly complex case, maybe for months, maybe for years, and you finally get a guilty verdict in? That's what is that moment like for you as a prosecutor? It, you know, it was a steep learning curve for me um, because I, I I thought you know winning was everything, uh, but actually it's not. Our job is you know we prosecutors are seen as ministers should be ministering justice. And they shouldn't be focusing on the outcome. They should be making sure that a proper job is done, that the evidence presented to the court. And, you know, sometimes people are not guilty. Uh, and it's quite right that the jury finds them not guilty if the evidence doesn't meet 
reach the right threshold. Um, initially, I was, I, I, I'm sure uh, there were occasions when I felt, oh my God, you know, he got away, he got away with it or something, you know. But actually, um, it meant that we hadn't done our job properly. If somebody is found not guilty, and let's say they are guilty, um, then it's we didn't do our job properly. No, not them. Not nobody else is to blame. And um, so we, you know, there were so many occasions um, uh, where you know. I get quite emotional sometimes, and it's difficult as a professional uh, to to hide in that. But you have to when you, let's say, a jury would come back with a guilty verdict and a murder, and you're there with the family of the deceased, um, and they are they're in tears and tears. What tears are? Or tears? They're not tears of joy because they won't get their loved one back. Um, they're tears of uh, I think satisfaction or or that justice has been done, and you know you have to remain. Um, um, you know, whether, whether, whether we are above it all, I guess, and uh, be sympathetic and empathetic, but you can't join in with them. You know, I, I, I hate, there were rare occasions when the police would go for a drink afterwards, you know what I mean, to celebrate or something. And I, I used to avoid those like the plague um, because I didn't think there was any joy in that. Just because somebody, you know, a really personal example, Chris, is that about three years ago, three years ago, my, one of my nephews was killed in a knife attack uh, in Birmingham, uh, you know, unprovoked attack. He was 18 years old. And um, the person who killed him was a 17-year-old boy with mental health issues. Um, so my, my nephew's gone. His family have had to deal, will deal with the loss. Uh, but the 17-year-old boy who killed him, his family have been devastated and destroyed, and they will not see their child out again for a minimum of 17 more years, you know? So um, by the time he comes out, if he does come out, he'll be in his late thirties. And um, so, how, you know, at least two families have been devastated mm. by what, by that one attack. Is that a cause for celebration? No. I, I mean, building on that, uh, can, can I ask you what doing the job for so many years taught you about human nature? Because I imagine you see yeah. a lot of the bleak side of life, but maybe, occasionally the best of people as well, well I, I think the, the way you just described it i've seen the worst of us and i've seen the best of us um 25 years ago i mean we're we're adults and i can t i can share this with you uh 25 years ago i was dealing with a case involving a parents who'd been sexually abusing their own children and this was in the days of camcorders and the father rapes 18 month old baby whilst mum holds her down and they film the whole event. And as, when, they're, when they're being prosecuted, obviously, as a reviewing prosecutor, I have to view the material. And when you're viewing an 18-month-old baby being raped, you don't go, this is just a job, I'm at 5 o'clock, I need to go home now. You go home that evening and you hug your own children closer mm -hmm. and you realise that your job is a mission. It's not a, a, a job. You know, it's not a vocation. It's much more than that. Uh, and I think that's exactly how I've, I've felt for the last 25 years that thereabouts is that, you know, it's more than a job. It's about delivering something to people um, which otherwise they wouldn't get. And, um, and that undoubtedly, you know, those are the worst of us. But the officers working on that case and in every other case that I've had to deal with are the best of us. Because, uh, you know, just thinking about it, I was the first contact for the Peter Fine Unit in New Scotland Yard. And these officers 
would go into the office at eight in the morning and they spend the whole day looking at indecent images of children because every image is a crime scene. They're trying to identify the perpetrator, the victim, whether or not it's part of a network. And they finish at 6, 7 p.m. and they go home to their families and they get up the next morning and do the same thing. Now, you tell me, you know, could you and I do that? Uh, I, you know, I struggled just in the, the bit that I had to do. Um, so they're the best of us, the people who are absolutely determined and dedicated to um, fi you know, finding wrongdoing and also to protecting the most vulnerable. And, uh, and added to that, Chris, the NGOs who work in this field, you know, we, 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 I don't value anybody on the money they have or the house they have or the car they drive. I value them on the difference they make to other people. And that we had here, you know, we've got NGOs who spend half their lives fundraising, but the rest of their lives supporting people who are at their wit's end. And they are the best of us. And, um, and you know, so absolutely, I may have seen the worst of us, but more, I think that's all over, that's been overwhelmingly, I've seen the best of us. Yeah. And on a slightly different note, the law obviously throws up lots of lots of very bleak and dark moments, but there are some lighthearted moments in there as well sometimes that cross your path. And there's a story in the book about the case where, I'm going to word this carefully, um, there was a couple who were getting intimate on the train. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, that was really, really early doors, really early yeah. doors that was. I must have been a prosecutor two or three years it taught me a lot, actually, but I mean, the case in point was a couple uh, traveling back from Wildgate to Victoria, London, uh, bank holiday, obviously had a lot to drink. Uh, they decided to become very intimate uh, on, on, the, um, on the train back. Um, and uh, the public, it was a busy train, the bank holiday train. Uh, and nobody complained until they lit up a cigarette because it was a no smoking compartment. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I dealt with the case and I prosecuted and I realised everybody in court laughed and I thought hang on and then the next day it was front page of all the nationals and um, Time magazine had it quoted of the week how British we are you know Victoria Wood wrote a whole sketch about it uh, but it what it taught me was um, one we're, we're funny people but second <laughs> perhaps more importantly is that what I said in court everybody read yeah. And I thought, oh, right, okay. So if I open a case, if I present a case in a certain way, not necessarily humorously, but, you know, in a certain way, um, then that could have an impact on us all uh, because the media reported it. You know, back in the day, another statement I make in the book is how valuable court reporters are. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if the Post have, have them now, um, but, yeah, not, but not really anymore. Uh, we have people occasionally go to court, but not yeah. as, as regularly there, there was a, as used to see court reporters. Yeah, there was a brilliant court reporter called Tony Asiak, Maltese guy, who I know, I can still picture him. He's passed away a while ago, you know, fat, horrible to look <laughs> at. Uh, but did he know his stuff? And there were occasions, Chris, when he, he'd be in court and he'd say to me, uh, knowing what case was coming up, he'd say, if you say this, it's front page of the sun. <laughs> front page of the mirror. If you say it dry in the way that you were going to say it, it wouldn't. And so he taught me a great deal about how um, you know the use of language uh, can have impact. And uh, you know we miss we should have court reporters because the public 
you know, everything that happens in a courtroom happens in your name. Actually, I go further. If you, 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 as you know, in the book, I talk about live streaming. I personally feel, subject to you know, vulnerable witnesses, etc., we should be live streaming all our court proceedings. I can't see any reason why that doesn't happen. The technology is there. Um, whether you want to watch it on, you know, is up to you. But it's happening in your name. Therefore, you should see it, uh, and it will deal with some of the issues we have around the poor level of legal education. People really don't know what's going on. You know, they, they get worked up about sentences sometimes and why cases haven't proceeded or whatever. Um, if they would see it with their own eyes. In the old days, you know, people go to the public gallery. Uh, doesn't happen very much these days. But live streaming would give you that opportunity to, to really see what is taking place. Um, and well, can I ask you about that? Because is, do you feel there the, there is a bit of a knowledge gap from the public about about how courts work and particularly sentences and, and things like that? Hundred percent is it? I mean, it's some of it is actually uh, exploited by politicians, for example. Uh, you you constantly you can't get this constant refrain about we need to lock people up for longer, given we're going to increase the maximum sentence, blah, blah, blah. Which, which forgets, actually, unless you arrest them in the first place, uh, unless you resource people to prosecute them and, and have courts that will sit uh, to hear them in a timely fashion, there's no point talking about sentencing. So absolutely, so people exploit the lack of education, uh, the lack of knowledge. I always use the word education, lack of knowledge. Uh, and we do need... Uh, much more information out there about what happens in a courtroom, why it happens a certain way. You know, one of the things I did, and some of it, I since we backtracked on a bit, is I used to always do engagement with the communities. I used to be up and down the country, running around town halls, church halls, you name it, uh, talking to people about the service and what we've done and what cases done, uh, what happened in particular cases, and. That is how you inform people. A uh, press release doesn't do it for me, uh, but uh, we don't do enough of that. So, but I guess the flip side of that is something that I also wanted to ask you about, um, because you did become, when you obviously are now, something of a public figure. Um, and that, in part, possibly, I don't know, I'd be fascinated to hear your take. There were two really serious incidents um, that are mentioned in the book. Um, the first was being told by Special Branch that you were on an Al-Qaeda hit list yeah. um, after you successfully pushed for stronger charges against people who were protesting over the Prophet Muhammad. Danish cartoons, yeah. Um, and then, kind of on the other side of the coin, um, being targeted by the far right to the extent of needing home security because of protesters outside your homes because of, well, almost an early example of fake news, wasn't it? Where 100%. Where yeah, they were sure. claiming that you were blocking Rochdale prosecution <laughs> when you're actually prosecuting them. I know. I was, you know, I was being lauded in Parliament. Prime ministers <laughs> were mentioning my name, but somehow the far right decided that I, I, I was the problem uh, because I damaged their narrative. Chris, as simple as that. You know, the narrative was that all brown people are offenders. Uh oh, a brown person brought this case. Uh, let's try and destroy him. Um, there's a personal cost to leadership. Is, is the bigger point here? And um, you know, when, when I dealt with the, the cartoon protesters and I charged some of them with soliciting murder, which you know was a big deal because um, they were carrying signs saying "behead this" and "behead that," and you know that if that isn't soliciting murder, what is? A public order charge would have given them a slap on the wrist. A soliciting murder charge, where they were convicted, gave them six years in jail. Big difference. Uh, but you don't see those placards anymore on the streets. So, you know, it has that impact on behaviours. Uh, and then when you learn that, you know, you're 
somebody wants to kill you, um, you know, what was funny about that, and there is always a funny side, is I said to the uh, officer, um, so what now? He said, I'm just legally obliged to tell you that you're on the list. <laughs> there was no, there's nothing they Good can luck. do about it. <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and, you know, here I am 15 years later, I'm still here. I don't know about Al-Qaeda or So, uh, you know, I think you get used to that. I mean, again, in the book, I describe how when I was eight, year, eight years old, my, my cousin dies in my arms. She's eight. I carry her for four hours on a ferry. Uh, when I was 12 years old, my uncle was killed by the IRA in Northern Ireland. Uh, my family went through partition uh, and suffered you know, consequently. Um, so I suspect there's been so much suffering in my life. And that I, that's in many respects led to my being able to cope with these kinds of things. But when the far right came for me, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for that because, I, I, as I said a moment ago, I was being celebrated in Parliament and uh, uh, the nationals were covering it, you know, saying what, you know, hero, whatever that word means, you know. Uh, and then the fake news. And then suddenly, having prosecuted, you know, hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of cases, they never came to my door. Suddenly I got people outside my door. And uh, panic alarm placed in the house, um, a police officer stands outside my door for two weeks because that's that's the safety advice I've been given. My kids can only go to school in a taxi for three months uh, because, again, that's the safety advice I was given. Uh, I get doorstepped by Nick Griffin and British National Party TV. None of it still exists. Um, you know, uh, they're literally... Um, uh, I've got 17,000 emails to my teams and my staff and letters calling for me to be sacked and deported. And I always joke about the fact that I'm born in Birmingham. I don't want to go back there. But, you know, the, <laughs> the, the point is that they um, wanted to destroy me, and they came close to that. I have to admit they did. You know, my family was suffering. Um, I was suffering. I, I pay tribute to my colleagues at work because I still remember my PA running down the corridor with a letter, don't show it to him, don't show it. You know, uh, they, they protected me from the worst excesses, mm -hmm. and they also arranged my diary in such a way that I could do the school run, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they wouldn't they prevented me from having overnight stays away for a while because you know I would need to be at home, etc. Um, yeah, you have to have those networks around you to survive that kind of uh, attention, um, even as long as it was that I shouldn't have had it in the first place. So it, it sounds like did you did you come close to consider quitting, or, or did you just decide you um, can bow bow to kind of what was no, going on? The exact opposite, actually. Um, because um, you, once we dealt with that particular, the grooming gang case, the whole issue of child sexual abuse was now the national um, diet, the national conversation, wasn't it? Um, people forget Savile was after Rochdale, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, Operation Utree was after Rochdale. So all the, the famous prosecutions, et cetera, were after it. Um, we had to, I knew we had to do something different to protect the victims, the, uh, not just the ones in Rochdale or Rotherham or anywhere else, everywhere. And so I had to work. I was working then with my, my then colleague, Keir Starmer, don't know what happened to him, um, uh, to you know, develop a national panel. So we looked at all these cases that we had um, not progressed properly before. We had um, specialist training, specialist prosecutors, specialist. So I worked to change the system. And walking out the door would not have enabled that to happen. Um, you know, I vividly remember... Um, a moment where I, where I had a fever, I don't know why, I was at home and I, I just collapsed on the floor of my kitchen. And my two youngest children, who were 10, 11 and 12 at the time, uh, walked in and I, one said to the other, I think dad's dead. And that woke me up or got me, stir, stirred me. 
and yes, it, so it literally was having a, a massive effect on me mm. personally, but I did not, could not show it. I, I yeah. had to, there was so much to do. Yeah. Um, and t- towards the end of the book, um, you talk about people having a lack of faith in the justice system. Um, and I know you've said on Twitter recently, um, failures in the criminal justice system in regards to rape cases you've put down or you suggested down to reduced investment yes. so from the government is it as simple as that uh yes <laughs> um, <laughs> but, i mean people forget when i left the crown prosecution service in 2015-16 this is a matter of public record i don't have to make i'm not making it up we had the highest conviction rate for violence against women and girls domestic abuse sexual violence child sexual abuse in our history in that four year t- period between 11 and 15 which where i led, led nationally we turned it around. The ship was, you know, the super tanker to the point where we were making massive progress. And then all the cuts hit. We, we delivered the cuts, but now they were hitting. So if you lose 21,000 police officers as we have done nationally, what you've lost is half a million years of policing experience. Because the minimum, they've all served 20 plus years. When you lose 25% of prosecutors, when you lose uh, 800 police stations, uh, you know, uh, or um, hundreds of magistrates' courts, etc. So, um, yes, and when the NGOs uh, are starved of funding because they're the ones who provide first lines and front line support, uh, you don't have specialists anymore. You don't have experience anymore. Um, what do you think is going to happen? You know, it really is bewildering to me that people can stand up and say it's nothing to do with resources. Um, I had a conversation yesterday with somebody from the from, uh, government and um, surely there's more to it than resources was uh, come with me, have a look for yourself. I haven't even mentioned the legal aid cuts, you know, and the impact on the defense community. Um, you cannot, you know, just ask yourself, could you pay your bills with 25% less income uh, to anybody? Nobody, we'd all struggle, wouldn't we? And that is justice has had exactly the same. And these cases, the way serious offenses, sexual offenses, they're the most complicated cases. They're the ones that require the greatest resource um, um, by some distance. You need a great deal of time, great deal of effort, great deal of review, etc. So you're going to make, you know, you're going to cut things. You're going to cut corners. You're going to make it more difficult to prosecute those. Corners. So, but, but can you just explain on a on a practical level how does having? I know this might sound like a bit of a silly, obvious question. But obviously, the cases are still happening. So how does having fewer prosecutors and fewer police actually mean that cases aren't getting to court? Is it as simple as people aren't investigating it properly or that prosecutors are having to make a decision that they might not have otherwise made? Is Uh, it a combination? uh, All of those things. One of the first thing, I think first thing people need to recognise is that policing is all about priorities. Um, so if you're concerned about your antisocial behavior or your, um, I don't know, fly tipping or uh, whatever it may be, the police have to allocate resources to that. Uh, and so they will then look at their teams. They had maybe, let's imagine, I don't know, make up a number. Let's say um, North Yorkshire police had 100 officers who were dealing with uh, rape and sexual offenses, and they now had 60, or they have 60, a reduction of 30 or 40. Uh, and they are the most experienced ones that go. The other 60 are, are going to take a while to bring themselves up to speed. And that means there'll be delay. And delay means that victims lose interest or 
just don't think they're being taken seriously. So they don't bother. Uh, if they have reported, they don't. Um, they wonder what's happening to their case, and they they ignore. They are ignored. If you're waiting two or three years for uh, an investigation to be complete, then the prosecutors. You know, if we, if we've got fewer prosecutors, that means that one prosecutor who previously would have fifty of these cases to deal with now has a hundred cases to deal with, and so they might miss something, or they may not ask something of the police that they should have asked in terms of further evidence, further inquiry, etc., etc. Uh, then you've got a court system where two, three-year delays for a trial uh, are not uncommon now, and worse since COVID. Um, you know, during that period, witnesses leave the country. Witnesses forget what they've said. Um, you know, it, uh, you don't have the capacity, the time. You know, the defendant commits another offence. You know, all sorts of things can happen, which mean that that case would not proceed. Unless you deal with cases um, robustly at the outset, at some pace, uh, work together um, in, uh, in making the cases stronger where it's possible to do so, uh, and get them into court as fast as possible, um, then something will happen to them. And that is what was happening to them. Um, another thing that I was interested in asking you about was, um, obviously, there's been a huge national interest in the Sarah Everard case. Um, and you were one of the first people to call for a broader inquiry into policing practice and in, in particular institutional sexism. Um, Priti Patel this week has announced an inquiry, a two-stage inquiry, one looking at the specifics of Wayne Cousins and his time as a police officer, and one, I think, looking at the issues that kind of arise from that. Can I ask you a really simple question? Does what's been announced by the government go far enough? No, absolutely not. Um, what struck me, well, there's been six, you and I may not have known the facts of what happened to Sarah Everard until last week. The government and police have known since six months ago. Uh, and that means they could have begun much of this conversation. They could have made, developed a strategy. They could have, uh, worked out their communications, for example, all those things in tandem. What seems to be happening? is that they're literally making it up as they're going along this last week or so. You know, you get this press release issued by the Met and other press release telling women what they should do. Blah, blah, blah. You know, if you start a press, if you start any strategy or any policy with the words women must or women should, it's the wrong policy. Because this issue is not about women's safety. It's about male violence. It's about misogyny. It's about what causes uh, women, to, women to suffer and women to suffer harm. And... You know, so everything the government and, and the policing has done over the last week or so literally feels like back of the fag packet stuff. You know, so we need some. We need to think um, about where we are as a as a country. Uh, after Dunblane, you remember the terrible events of Dunblane. Um, the government changed the rules, and the whole issue of gun licensing was changed. Uh, after Hillsborough, um, within thirty one days, actually, um, the the. There, there was an initial review that decided how the, the ground should be re, reconfigured, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that, you know, the subsequent inquest, inquiry, you know, took years and years and years. But the point is, it led, could have led and should have led to seismic change. Um, and after Shipman, uh, you know, one GP, you know, uh, the whole concept of GPs and, and how they deal with um, people in the community, et cetera, was completely changed. We have now a situation where a former minister, Baroness Wasi from, uh, from Dewsbury, said, did she not, last week, she said, 
if I'm approached by a lone male police officer and, and, and who asked to detain me, I would rather resist arrest. Right? And she was a former Home Office minister. Uh, you've got Police Scotland now saying to reassure people, uh, if you come across a lone officer, uh, he's he or he is required to switch on his um, his radio so you the you know, the uh, police response room can hear you you can hear them and you can assure yourself that this officer is on duty etc etc. How how have we come to this? You know the idea that this is just like a a one-off or a bad apple. We also had, did we not, in the last few days, we've had the report saying a thousand officers have been investigated over the last five years uh, for um, malicious communications, on, you know, inappropriate communications. We had reports that there were WhatsApp messages taking place between officers and uh, and the particular murderer in question. Um, you, you had a, a former female police officer, senior officer, saying that um, once she thought about refer, once she thought about referring somebody for his abusive language and behaviours, she was told, watch, watch yourself on patrol, you know? Never mind victimization repercussions, her safety uh, is being threatened. When you've got a situation like that, do you really think uh, these tiny back-of-the-pack fact packet inquiries are going to make a difference to how we feel, the public feel, particularly the majority of the public, the women of our communities feel? We need a judge-led, independent inquiry, as we had following Stephen Lawrence as well, another case that I should have changed the way policing deals with race. Um, and anything less than that is, uh, is an attempt for us to move the agenda on. Uh, but the agenda doesn't move on. As you know, between Sarah Everard's murder and the murders last week, 80 other women have died. And there'll be another 80 in the next six months. So this is not going to change unless we do something very different. And by focusing entirely on women's safety, you know, more street lighting, that enables you to see the person's going to attack you, you know? All it does is shines a light on the inadequacy of the government's response. You know, we, we need to do a great deal more about ensuring that the, the reason why men feel entitled, uh, men feel that they can do this, is addressed, not just the consequences of, of that. And can, can I ask you about another issue up up in this part of the world, which is Philip Allett, the North Yorkshire yeah. Police Commissioner, who has been, well, not just in the headlines in this part of the world, but across the country for what yeah. he said, um, that women should be more streetwise and yeah. Sarah Everard shouldn't have submitted to being arrested. Yeah. Um, and at, at the time of speaking, we're a week away from him facing... Um, the police and crime panel where he is going to account for his actions, albeit in a virtual online meeting rather than face-to-face -face with the public. Right. What have you made of of what's happened and is his yeah. position untenable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I was asked to sign the letter I, that, was, uh, that was prepared. I said, I don't need to sign the letter. I'm going to tell you what I think. He should not be in that role. I used to be chief executive of the country's peace and crime commissioners. So um, Julia Mulligan, who was the previous, I worked with very well, and they're very effective in, in many respects with what they do. Um, what he said is goes beyond an apology. Yeah, he says, I think, uh, that he, you know, he apologises because of how it was perceived and how it was received. Actually, what it shows, it shows us what he is. You know, you can't apologise for who you are. And that's what it shows us. Uh, when you blame women which is what it is, 
uh, for, and blaming Sarah Everard particularly, uh, for what happened to her. I'm afraid you are doing us no favours. And you are meant to be the person that is uh, ultimately representing the public with the police. And, uh, and you know, and again, the majority of our public are women. So um, there is no way in my, my, in my uh, judgment uh, that he should remain in that role. You know, he's lost the confidence of um, uh, the communities of North Yorkshire and beyond. Uh, you know, he's part of a national association of police and crime commissioners. Uh, you know, they, they should, um, um, dem they should, I think, say what they think about um, uh, what um, uh, Abbott said or did. Uh, and uh, well, the other thing it does, I'm afraid to say, Chris, is it emboldens the perpetrator. Mm. There are men out there who, having listened to Philip Abbott, will think, yeah, he's, he's right. Women should look after themselves, you know, uh, and uh, and it shouldn't. Then we shouldn't do anything different. We 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 should, the all men brigade. You know, it's not all men. Um, you know, unless men see that they have the role and responsibility to fix this issue, um, it won't be fixed. And what Philip Allen has done is he's added to that narrative, which is that it's, uh, you know men are doing all they can, uh, and women women should do more. Could, could I ask, does it raise a question about recall powers for police and crime commissioners? Because at the moment, people can say to the blue in the face, like many people have, he should go. It appears no one can can make him go if he doesn't want to resign. That yeah. That's the end of the matter at the moment. Um, I think this is where politics comes in. Yeah, you're right. The recall power is not, um, is not available, unlike uh, MPs, for example. Uh, but that, I think, was a mistake. I mean, there's no getting away from it. That's something that should be remedied quickly, but it won't be remedied in time, uh, in any good time. So um, the politics of this comes in, which is I can't believe that the 20 other uh, conservative police and crime commissioners around this country, who might, many of whom I've worked with in my former role, who are as um, determined to tackle violence against women and girls as the best of us, uh, can, would want to work with him. You know, and uh, and then you've got um, uh, you know, local policing. You know, how do they feel about what he said? Because it completely goes against what the uh, national police chiefs have been saying about this these behaviours. Um, you know, he's completely he's an outlier. And as an outlier, I think the politics, and I know the Yorkshire Post have been boldly and bravely uh, calling for his resignation. Um, you know. And the panel have a power, don't they, to to say, in effect, have no confidence in him. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't think of I can't think of a stronger case where somebody should have um, where people should have no confidence. In somebody. As I said, an apology isn't good enough when it just shows us who you are, mm. and and what he said shows us who he is. At a time when the rest of us were absolutely bewildered that this could happen in this country. I've just got two more questions, and thank you yeah. so, so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. So uh, we, you mentioned him very briefly earlier, um, Keir Starmer. And in the book, um, Keir Starmer, who you obviously worked alongside in the CPS, yeah. you describe him as a kindred spirit. Um, so I was just wondering, how do you think he's doing as Labour leader? Uh, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not a politician. And when I, whenever, every time I've been asked, Chris, I've said no. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about Keir here, but uh, I'll say this. I think we have the least capable parliament in my in my lifetime. You know, yesterday I was with a couple of MPs and ministers, uh, and they were the capable ones. 
<laughs> but uh, you know, so saying it firstly, that's that's the reality. I think we, you know, I, I intellectually, I, I struggle with some of my some of these colleagues. I think Keir's first responsibility has been uh, to um, try and the one thing that's lacking in government and politics generally is honesty and integrity. You, know, you use the word fake news, and I've, I've used it before. The public don't know what to believe anymore. You know, um, and so what Keir I think has set out to do, uh, and it must be his first task, is try and restore um, that in in public life that you can actually believe what somebody says, uh, and and they will uh, they will go through with their promises. To my mind, that is the biggest challenge we face, uh, and you know, more than a full time job. Um, he's also having to rebuild a Labour Party uh, who had one of their worst performances in in. In generations, didn't they? Uh, against a, a, a government that um, seems um, immune from attack, um, uh, or seemingly. So, yeah, I think he, he's got his hands full. Um, my working with him was really around uh, violence against women and girls, domestic abuse, sexual violence. And when I say kindred spirit, is that um, the, the fact that I was able to lead on these subjects, uh, and he simply let me do it. Um, was um, something I will never forget, you know, um, and making it as easy for me and making me, supporting me on every decision I took, and, uh, you know, that I think um, was something that I, I'll never forget. You know, he, he's, uh, he, he, he loves loyalty uh, and, uh, and he engenders that amongst his people around him. Uh, and at his heart, uh, he, he is um, somebody of the people. You know, people forget that way before uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, he was um, uh, representing the McDonald libel case people, people who were standing up to McDonald's um, uh, without legal uh, representation. He was doing it for free, you know? Um, so I think he's demonstrated through his life that he's interested in um, those who are the vulnerable, those who are um, left behind, those who, who um, you know, the kinds of people that I've had to deal with in my youth. Uh, and I think that's the challenge we face now: is that, that this country is not is divided, uh, and um, you know, I hope that he has um, uh, the resilience uh, and the ideas. I think one thing that's I think lacking uh, is you know we need to hear more about the vision. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, you know, as a man, uh, you know, I have utmost respect for him. Have you ever considered a move into politics yourself? No, I was asked. I've been asked a couple of times in the last five years uh, if I was interested in standing uh, in a particular uh, location, whatever it may be. And as I've said, you know, the gradual Marx said, didn't he? Would you want to be a member of a club that would have you? <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, I, 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 that's why I said at the outset about um, my current view of parliamentarians. It isn't mm -hmm. very high. I feel that I can achieve a great deal more um, outside. You know, wearing all of my different hats, working with the, the charities I work with, etc., than I possibly could in Parliament. And just as a final question, um, something that intrigued me at the end of the book, because I must admit I wasn't aware of it, and I was just wondering if there was any update, and there may not be. Um, you submitted a 225-page dossier to the CPS, um, yeah. alleging that Dominic Cummings was responsible for six breaches of lockdown regulations after the infamous Barnard Castle trip, and obviously yeah. witnesses getting in touch with you. Um, about what they say they saw, yeah. um, submitted that to the CPS 
I, simple question: Have you heard anything back yet? Yeah, we got we got we got a, a very short response saying um, uh, it doesn't change our um, our initial. Well, the CBS said that we were never asked uh, by the first. Uh, and that we're not an investigative body. Police. We're not investigated by the police. Uh, we were never asked for our view, and and we can't give you a view without the police referring a file to us, which is the standard uh, response I expected anyway. Uh, and the police's response was, um, "What you've, what, what's contained, contained within the report uh, isn't, um, doesn't change our our view. This is Durham Police's view. The Metropolitan Police uh, referred us to Durham Police, even though." There were various things that they, they needed to respond to. Um, uh, so they seemed to close ranks, which is not unusual. Uh, and the um, um, strange thing is, uh, uh, almost a week uh, after that, he resigned. And, uh, um, you know, is, he, is it over? No, I don't think it's over. But uh, my, my appetite for uh, pursuing Mr. Cummings uh, isn't as strong as my, my desire for a public inquiry in relation to the whole of how COVID has been dealt with. You know, I've spoken, I lost my brother to COVID in uh, April of last year, and you know he died after we stopped community testing, which is a government decision because we didn't have enough testing, didn't we? And uh, and I've, I've worked with the bereaved families groups across the country, and we're determined that you know the government, you know, prime minister said there would be there'll be one in the spring or begin in the spring, but the reality of that is it'll be a long, long time before we understand what happened. So my focus now in relation to COVID isn't Dominic Cummings, it's uh, to ensure that we learn, uh, well, to understand accountability related to the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and ultimately what lessons can be learned from that. So are you part of the bereaved um, group? Well, look, thank you so, so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Um, And yeah, your show is October the 22nd, isn't it? 22nd at the Crown Hotel, I think it is. Yes, I think that's right. I checked the press release this morning, so I think you've got it absolutely right. Um, So, yeah, anyone looking out for tickets, I think they're available online. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Not at all, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Podzone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week.